What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Sapira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me. It was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny, and I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. Uh, I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagara. Bill, today we're going to talk about Sammy the Bull Garvano. Very cool nickname. Not sure he's a very cool guy. He's out. He's living in the Phoenix area still, I think. And uh, before we get into that, I just want to remind everyone to check out our Patreon page, that is patreon.com slash Diaries, where you'll get bonus episodes and access to material that's not available otherwise. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries. Bill, Sammy the Bull, you know a lot about this guy. Are you fascinated by this guy? Are you interested in this guy particularly? Well, yeah. American person or person in the United States, they're, you know, they love the mob, and I'm, I'm no different. I think it's, it's interesting, I think, the guy's a character, okay? Not to be mistaken with a person of character, he's a character. And, you know, with all the John Gotti connections, the, the informant, the tough guy, you know, he was known as Sammy the Bull for a reason. He was an enforcer for the Colombo and then the Gambino family. So, yeah. I mean, everybody's interested in this guy. He runs a very popular podcast. Uh, look, the guy was in the game. He was the, one of the top guys in the five families. So, of course, everybody wants to know about this guy. And, yeah, I, I like everybody else, is interested in this guy. Yeah, I don't understand the fascination that a lot of American males have with the mafia or or maybe not i guess i can understand the fascination but the reverence i don't quite get these guys are bad guys if you live on the east coast they make your life more difficult without you even knowing it because they they just clog up the system so you know if if you want to buy a commercial real estate property for example they're inflating that price by what 50 percent because they're just threatening everyone and they're a bunch of losers they really are they're uneducated guys yeah i I, I get what you're saying but let's be frank here in san francisco the prices of real estate is inflated to the yin yang and the the mob doesn't control that so look the reverence for these guys came from the godfather you know the, the movie with al pacino it came from you know Goodfellas. They came from all these movies. The American public is interested in these guys, and they revere them as almost heroes because they've been doing this way before the mob. Remember, there was John Dillinger, Jesse James. These guys are all killers. Billy the Kid. It's the same type of reverence, the same type of um, you know machismo that Americans love. Well, in the last few few years. And people have gotten away from the love of the machismo guy, but this is something that people have been doing for close to probably over a, a century in the United States. Yeah, and I get the appeal like on a certain level. I never had to deal with it anywhere else, but where I grew up, I grew up in Alaska, and there were a lot of bad, mean guys walking around. And I had a certain thing where I was essentially protected because I was friends with everyone who mattered and I did like the feeling of knowing I don't have to worry about anything if anyone bothers me they'll get bothered back you know to put it lightly and 
that's a feeling that I think a lot of people crave. I think a lot of people, you know, put that that up on a pedestal and but I don't think a lot of people have that either. So, you know, there's just a lot of guys look, guys want to belong. That that's as much as I can boil it down, right? Well yeah, but this has to do with something much deeper than that. And it, it comes to race. I mean look let's look at this deeper than most people would look at it. Today you have you know Hispanics who have street gangs. You have African Americans that have street gangs. It's about belonging. But in those days Italians were looked upon just like Hispanics or blacks. No one wanted them around. They called them grease balls. They called them all kinds of stuff. So, of course, if you're from a neighborhood and you live in basically poverty, but you see these guys running around with wingtips on and suits and Cadillacs, and everybody, and the word is, respects them. It's respect based out of fear. So when you see this as a kid, right away, you're not looking at John Wayne or, you know, the Lone Ranger or none of those guys as a person you can strive to be. But you see a mobster, a guy who everybody respects, even the cops respect these guys, or at least they fear them. Then of course, yeah, it becomes something that becomes very ingrained in your life as a very young child. And it grows from there. America became obsessed with it because of movies, the media. You know, you see John Gotti, Teflon Don, going to trials and beating it, and the fans, and he's like a damn movie star. So, I get it. Remember, I grew up in a pretty race-related neighborhood where I was basically a guy that was, I was the outside guy. I wasn't Mexican or black. I'm Colombian. So, I could relate how people strive to be like these type of guys. So, I got it. I understood it. And I still understand it. Yeah, I get it, too. It's... You know, an interesting thing I was thinking about is if you look at New York City, which is the hub of most of this stuff, you had the the Irish guys that mostly became cops. So they were essentially the mob, but just it was legal or they, they had a, a legal uh, front. And then you had the Italian guys that got into the, the mafia. The interesting thing is, and maybe it's because of these movies, but the Italian New York guy, that is still going strong. That There's no shortage of Italian guys who identify as Italian machismo type guys in New York. The Irish New York guy, that's kind of gone. You might meet occasionally the Boston Irish guy whose whole identity is being Irish, but not really. And I find that interesting. Because they were the two, they were two, they were the two groups, and now there's just one left, and I think it's because of the movies. Well, I mean, it's just just because you don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. No one knew about the mob really until it became the Malachi papers, or we had these guys turning on the mob. The Irish guys are in Boston; they're still there. You just don't know they're there. They're in, they're in real estate. They're they're guys in corporate America. The Italian mob has changed. It's still there. Believe me when I tell you, it is still there. We just don't hear about it because they've, they've legitimized themselves. They're now working construction. They're doing different types of things in unions. The street thug guy that just starts killing people has changed. Everything evolves over time. Look, there's, there's even another group, the Jewish mob. You remember a guy by the name of Meyer Lansky? At one point, he was the richest man in America. He was a Jewish mobster. See, the Jewish mob, the Irish mob, the Italian mob. Whitey Bolger made the Irish mob kind of famous for all the wrong reasons, but he also made it very famous. And we've talked about him a little bit. Maybe we should do an episode on Whitey Bolger and then do one on maybe, um, you know, Meyer Lansky about the mob. These guys, we're talking about a guy here, Sammy Gravano, who... I mean, you really have to look at him from, like we break down serial killer cases, look at him from a child and how he rose and became who he became. And it's a fascinating story. This guy here is what you call a tough guy. This guy, by no stretch of the imagination, was he weak. Even when he was, even when he was testifying, he was still 
a killer. Let me call back. All right, so let's talk about Sammy Gravano and how he ended up becoming a mass murderer. <laughs> I love how you put that. All right, so yeah, his actual name is Salvatore Gravano. He's born March 12, 1945. He was the underboss of the Gambino crime family, which makes him the second highest ranking member of the Gambino family under John Gotti. He is an original member of the Colombo family, and because of politics, he ended up in the Gambino family. And he's really known for, before this whole thing happened with him becoming a state witness, he is accredited for the murder of the Gambino boss, Paul Castellano, in, in 1985. And that was a huge hit that he and Gotti planned together. Um, so and he's also the highest ranking member ever of the five major crime families of DRB, the Italian mob, ever to break his blood oath and become a government witness. And because of his testimony, John Gotti, the Teflon Don, as well as a number of other prominent figures in these families, went to prison for the rest of their lives. So... Uh, yeah, let's talk about him as a kid because that's the big story of who he ended up at the very end. But to understand that, you got to know where he came from. He is the son of two Sicilian uh, parents, which is a, a must to become a mob member, a maid member, is you had to be Sicilian. Um, his parents are Girolando and Caterina Gervano. He is the youngest of three kids. He has two older sisters. And look, they started calling him Sammy because he looked like his Uncle Sammy. That's how I got the name Sammy. So at a very early age, look, he's a tough kid. He grew up in a tough side of town. He grew up in Brooklyn, um, but in a place called Bensonhurst. At 13, he joins a street gang called the Rappers. And just before that, uh, he gets that nickname because they steal his bicycle. So his dad is a, you know, he works very hard. But he has a small business, that, which is basically a tailor. He makes women's dresses because his mom's a seamstress. And his dad gives him a Schwinn bicycle, something they could not afford. But he gave it to his son. And, you know, Sammy being the kid that he is, he left it outside a drugstore, and some kids swiped it. So a few days later, he finds out who took his bicycle, and he goes to confront the guys. Of course, he's only about 10 years old this time they steal that bicycle, and the kids that took it are 12 and 13 years old. So he goes there, he confronts the guy, he takes his bike back, but these guys aren't having it, so they actually fight on it. It's him against two guys, and he's thumping with these guys, only a 10-year-old little boy, and it happens that guys across the street at a bar are made guys, and they're watching this kid fight, and one of them says, man, that guy fights like a bull. The guys walked over there, they asked the kids, what's going on? Sammy says, they took my bike, I'm fighting for my bike. So the guy gave him his bike back and asked those kids, if this is your bike, have your parents come over here and really tell us it's his bike. Of course, they stole the bike so they didn't come back. And from that moment on, because that maid guy called him Sammy the Bull, that's where that name came from. And it stopped for the rest of his life. He actually hated the name, by the way. Sam, Sammy hated the name the Bull because it was basically something they used against him. They used to bully him with it. They called him a dumb hog, a dummy, because he was dyslexic, didn't do well in school. So that's how his life started. But from the beginning, he was a scrapper. That's what they used to call him, a scrapper, a fighter. Yeah. So I saw interviews with him after the fact, and he's kind of reserved. He's pretty calm, and he seems reasonable. To me, it it's not someone I would suspect of being a killer. From your experience, are guys like this that are capable of killing many, many, many people, are they outwardly animated or are they kind of icy like this guy is? 
It depends on the character. Every, killers come in different shapes and sizes. Sammy the Bull, at this point in his career, is a performer. He knows how he's supposed to look, so he does that. When he was a mobster in the mob, he acted a different way because it was expected. It's really interesting how that works with these guys and everybody. When you are involved in something, you perform. And Sammy was a performer. Now, look, he may be reserved now. Okay, so this guy, he's not really a reserved guy. He's like a time bomb. If you kick him off, he explodes. Let me give you an example. He didn't do well in school, so basically he started ditching school. He didn't go to school, and at one point, truant officers picked him up, and they took him to the class principal or to the school principal, and this guy was a racist. So he's in there telling Sammy, you know, you're a greaseball, and this is what happens. Your parents are greaseballs. And Sammy gets up and tells him, hey, man, this is about me. I did this, not my parents. Keep them out of your mouth. Of course, the principal's like, hey, screw you. Your parents are greaseballs. And before the guy got the word greaseball out of his, his mouth again, Sammy punches him in the jaw and breaks his jaw. He's 15 at the time. He breaks his jaw, and they send him to a school for the incorrigibles. By 16, those schools don't even want him there. They refuse to allow him in because he's got such a bad reputation, and he explodes at a dime's notice, okay? This guy is the real deal. So believe me when you say, look, he's reserved. He's 77 years old. You're damn right he's reserved now. But that's not who he is. Even at that age, I'm willing to bet you that if you put him in a corner, he'll come out swinging. Why didn't he become a boxer?
Yeah, so his path is pretty set to becoming, uh, you know, made and being high up in the mob in, in this family. Uh, you know, his parents are Sicilian and he's getting the attention of the right people. So it's just natural that he's going to move up in this organization, right? Yeah, absolutely. But everything happens for him in a certain way. He's skyrocketing. It's not like a, you know, he's a knock-around guy for a few years. No, this guy's, it's like an accelerated elevator. This guy's rising fast. But what happens is, a close associate of Salvatore Todo Arillo, who likes Sammy a lot, he gets into the construction business. And he's doing well. You know, he's drywalling, making a lot of money. But this guy in the mob that's really jealous of him implicates Sam in a double murder that happened in 1969. Whether he did or not, I don't know. But he's indicted by the DA in, in uh, New York. And, you know, he's fighting for his life. He's not on bail. But he can't afford the lawyers, so he starts. He starts this crazy thing, is he starts to steal. I mean, rob, and he's robbing everybody. He's robbing so much that he catches a lot of people's attention. He pays for lawyers, and miraculously, the charges are dropped. The double murders are dropped. And but this guy, Total Aurelio, he's so impressed with Annie, with Sammy. He proposes him for membership, but the books are closed. At this time, the mob has had closed books since the 50s. What that means is that no new made members are allowed in. So you can be an associate, hang out with these guys, you rob for these guys, you kill for these guys, you drink with these guys, but you're not a made guy. A made guy, according to rules, is untouchable. The only guy that can touch him is another made guy. But he's not made. He's just an associate, but he's already being proposed. So what happens is that in this meantime, Sammy's killing. I mean, he is he's responsible for the death of his brother-in-law, Nicholas uh, Scabetta. And under the direction of Paul Castellano, who is the mob boss, he is the head of the, of the uh, Gambino family. And... You know, he's told Sammy to kill his own brother-in-law. That's a big problem for Sammy, but he does it anyways. And that shows loyalty to the family. So he's rising really quickly, and of course, they ask him to kill somebody else. So he kills a guy by the name of Johnny Keys. His name is John Johnny Keys Simone. And it's because of the construction business. He's in concrete, New York City, needs concrete, and they all have to go to Sammy the Bull Gravano to get their permit, to get even the concrete. He even said that, hey, Donald Trump, the mayor of freaking New York, gotta come to me if they want cement poor. That much, that's how much power he had. He was a multi-millionaire already. But they asked him to kill again, so he kills. And in 1976, when the books are open, Sammy's the first guy they make a made member immediately. So how many guys do you think, I I know we don't have any, I know we don't have any statistics on it, but a lot of guys in New York aspire to be in the mob. But when it comes down to actually killing someone, you know, how many of them say, yeah, I can do that and think they can do it. But when you got to actually kill someone, how many people can do that? Yeah, I'm just picturing if it was me or my friends growing up, most of them, I think the idea when you're kind of impressionable, like, hey, do you want to hang out with these guys that have a lot of cash and you get to stay at the bars after they close and you get free drinks and free meals? Yeah, that's all good. And then someone says, hey, you know the guy that owns the shop around the corner? I need you to go stab him to death. I would kind of... I'm pretty sure I'd be like, okay, this wasn't exactly what I had thought it was, or, or at least, I don't know. I, I would just, 
I, I could see a lot of people just walking away at that point and finding a different line of work. Well, yeah, but they're not going to ask a guy who they don't know to do this kind of business. What they do is, it, it starts off a little bit, they test you, you know, you're hanging, Matt's hanging around with, you know, with Bill. And, you know, this is what they'll do. Hey, Bill, Matt, hey, check this out now. You know, this guy, he's not paying his freaking rent. You know, we, we need you to go down there. You know, rough him up a little bit, okay? Can you do that for us? And right away, if you say, yeah, yeah, I'll take care of it. You go, you do it. You're earning now what they call your bones. You're earning respect. They're not going to ask. They don't know. It's going to do it to kill somebody. That comes later. They, they prep you. See what kind of balls you got, what you're willing to do. And it starts hijacking, robbery, larceny, racketeering, gambling, extortion, loan sharking. This is the business of the street mob. This is where John Gotti, Samuel Bulgarvano made their bones. It's by doing these things. So by the time they get to the point where someone's saying, hey, look, I need you to take care of this, they know what's going on. And they're going to do it immediately. Because at this point in their career, they know the only thing that they aspire to be is to become made. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but it's, it's what they aspire to do. So that's why you don't, you know, if someone asks you, hey, Matt, I need to go kill somebody, you think out of your mind. And that's what these guys are about. So, look, this guy is a main guy. He's working directly with the mob boss of the Gambino family, which is Pog. And they trust him. He is what he's also considered the enforcer for the Gambino family. Look, every one of those guys is willing to kill for you. But to excel. At being a killer, that was Sammy the Bull. He was the best. This wasn't a guy that you would just talk bad through and look at sideways. This guy, his title was Enforcer. <laughs> I don't know if you know what that means. That, that's huge. That guy walks into a club and everybody parts like the Red Sea. That's the kind of respect he had. And I mean respect based on one thing, fear. Yeah, I don't know if I would respect the guy, but I would certainly get out of his way. I don't want any part of that. Well, that's what they, that's what they consider respect. It isn't the kind of respect you, you get from, hey, look, this guy's a doctor, this guy's a lawyer, hey, he's a great father, he provides for his family, he happens to be, you know, whatever, a garbage disposal cleaner, but he's a good dad. That's not the respect I'm talking about. What the mob considers respect is that you actually fear him and what he's capable of doing. That is street respect. And that's something that only comes by doing the things that Sammy the Bull did. But, you know, look, things change. This guy, the mob Paul, the boss, Paul, you know, he, he wants to go legitimate. He does not, he wants to do things in concrete, construction, garbage disposal, that's where he's making money at. Guys like John Gotti and Sammy the Bull, they're involved in street crime because he wants to get away from this stuff. So he has a rule that says no member of the mob can sell or be involved in the drug trade. Absolutely not. And if you get involved in it, you'll be killed. It doesn't matter if you're made or not, you'll be killed. So what happens? In 1983, three members of Gotti's crew, uh, crew, and I mean by John Gotti, who at some point became the Gambino family crime boss. So the three members were Angelo Rucarillo, John Cardiglia, and I'm going to screw his names up, and Gene Gotti, who is John Gotti's brother. They're all indicted for heroin trafficking, which pissed off Castellano, who was the boss. And he asks second in command at that time to get him the tapes that the FBI have because they, they had actually bugged um, Ruger I know I screwed up that last name. My apologies to the, to the Italian uh, people of America. But they had bugged his, his house and he liked to talk. So what the mob boss wanted was the tapes to prove that they were actually selling heroin. Because, you know, the FBI could have made up whatever they wanted to make up, and, and it's not sure why you didn't kill three good guys. So, and he kept pressing 
get those takes. John Gotti himself, who was a made guy, but he was not anywhere near being boss, decided, you know, we gotta kill this guy. Because to save my brother and save my crew, because if they kill Gene Gotti, Gotti's next. He knows he's next. So they make this elaborate plan. And this is where the John Gotti and Sammy the Bull story become intertwined. They knew each other, and they were close, but this sealed them together for forever. So it happened in 1985, and it was December the 16th. Everybody knew that Paul Castellano and his driver were going to go to a steakhouse called Sparse Steakhouse in Manhattan. And Sammy the Bull and Gotti planned to have shooters with white trench coats and black fur Russian hats milling around the steakhouse. And when Castanel pulled up with his driver and got out, they opened fire on them. And they killed both the driver and the mob boss, which is Castanel. Now, this is a... Uh, you know, it's punishable by death if they find out, but the, all the families knew that John Gotti did it. Why did they allow it? Because they were tired of being oppressed by Castellano and just doing business deals for concrete and garbage. They wanted to get out on the action, the drug trade, and they knew that John Gotti brought that. So they allowed it to happen, and they were supposed to have like a three-tier, uh, three members that would run the family. So Sammy kind of elected John Gotti, the boss, with the kind of agreement with other families that if he fucked up, that Sammy would kill him himself and he would kill John Gotti. And that's how this whole thing started, where Sammy then became, he took over Toto's spot as a couple and then was elevated to underboss, which means he was only one other guy who was higher than him, and that was John Gotti. And we all had to recognize that Sammy put John Gotti in that place, and he could take him out, too. Everybody feared Sammy the Bull. So everything looks to be going exactly as planned, and he's on track to have this comfortable life, uh, you know, where he's he's respected and he's made and and no one can touch him. But things start to unravel, right? Yeah, but nothing lasts forever. And there's a lot of jealousy going on. John Gotti, who became the Teflon Don, was the media. Time Magazine had him the front cover of the Teflon Don because they hit him with racketeering charges and a bunch of other stuff. And the juries kept finding him not guilty. The federal government was pissed off. But there was a bit of jealousy going on. John Gotti secretly envied Sammy the Bull. Although he was the boss, you know, everybody liked him, but no one respected him like they respected Sammy. And Sammy's respect was because people feared him. They knew the kind of guy that he was. So as this is going on, and the government can't really nail John Gotti, they do the next best thing. They know they all go to this club. And they all, it's, it's John Gotti's club. And in that club, he thinks he's God. So the FBI go in there, they put bugs, and they start taping this guy. And John Gotti's just running his mouth. He's talking about murders. He's talking about everything. And as, long story short was, they got enough evidence on him to basically start charging him. But what really sunk his boat, because they think he's going to beat it again, is, they needed somebody in his organization to turn. They needed somebody to give him state evidence. So what they did was when they arrested these guys, they pulled Sammy the Bull to the side and they said, look, you're loyal to this guy and we get it. But look what he's saying about you. And then they, that's where the big shoe drops. They play tapes where John Gotti is talking about Sammy the Bull and he's talking bad about him. He's also implicating him in a bunch of murders, saying that it's Sammy that called the shot, Sammy did this, and Sammy's the one behind it, and, you know, he's a dumb goomba, and all this stuff. And that just kicked off Sammy the Bull. So much so that he did something that no one's ever done before, and that was 
And he became the highest he became the highest member of the five families to turn state's witness against the mob. And it was because John Gotti showed no loyalty to him. Samuel Bull put him in that position, made him boss, affirmed that he became his enforcer. Only they hear that John Gotti's treating him like a little girl, calling him names, talking bad about him, and then worse, implicating him in murders. So he turns, he testifies against John Gotti, and that sinks the mob and Gambino family's whole deal because they actually convict him, John Gotti that is, they gave him life without the possibility of parole along with other high-ranking members of the mob. And Sammy received, get this, for 19 murders that he was willing to admit that he committed, not to mention being underbossed and probably calling not only for being the, high, the second highest ranking member and probably who did call all the murders because he was underboss and forcer, probably has about 40, 45 murders on his, on his jacket. He received five years. By the time he finished testifying, four years had gone by. So he did one year in federal prison, left prison and went into the Witness Protections Program in Arizona, which lasted all of one year. Listen to this, man. This guy was such a bad Mickey Vicky that he leaves the freaking Witness Protection Program because he's not afraid of the mob. Think about this. He is the most recognizable face on the planet. He's saying, screw this. I'm not going to stay in Witness Protection. I'm going to do my thing. And he actually does. Get this, within a year of getting out of federal prison, he is hooked up and partnered up with a gang called the Devil Dogs. And they get into this ecstasy trafficking scheme that nets them 500K a week. This guy is racking in money more than he ever had when he was a member of the mob. They finally catch him. They indict his, his ex-wife, Deborah, his son, his daughter, him. And all the other guys from the Devil Dogs, they are convicted. And he gets 20 years in New York, federal charge. He gets another 19 years in Arizona for drug trafficking. And he goes into the system in 2002, and he does a stint. He gets out, I believe it's in 2017, and now becomes the guy that he is now. He's a YouTuber, he has a podcast, he does interviews, he writes books. They make movies about him. He became the guy that he is today. And I know people see him now on television. He's got a little hat on, little glasses. He's skinny, he's bald because of a problem with his thyroid. The guy's a killer. And if anybody thinks that because he turns state evidence that makes him weak, he's got to think twice about that one. That guy right there is like lightning. If he hits you, you're going to know it. Let me call that. link. That's what I kind of want to talk about. What fascinates me about this story is this guy's gallivanting with respectable people left and right. You know, he's you could have a drink with them at the bar. He's killed at least 20 people. I'm not comfortable being around someone who's killed 20 people for any reason whatsoever. You know, like, well, you could say, Matt, well you're not involved in CD activities. The mob's not going to kill you. Yeah, I get it. I still don't like the fact that he killed 20 people. You know, that's like saying, well, you know, this guy's a serial rapist. He's not going to rape you. He only rapes teenage girls. Like, okay, I still find it incredibly off-putting, and I think the guy's a creep. Look, I get what you're saying. Partially, you're correct. But you also have to understand... And this is going to be the argument for this. They're going to say, well, look, he's, he was in the mob, for better or for worse, and the guys that he killed were all mob members, and there were guys that were bad people to begin with. So I totally get it, but look, if he walks into a room, and let me guarantee you, and you have a senator, a congressman, and a governor, I'm willing to bet you money that if he's in that room, that governor, senator, and congressman are going to approach him before he approaches them just to talk to him. Because he's a bad dude. 
I mean, that would be by a bad dude, like a rapist or a freaking serial killer. Yes, he is a hitman, he's a murderer, he's an assassin. I get it. But there's a fascination with people of power want to get to other people closer, uh, close to other people who are also people of power. He's Sammy the Bull, for God's sake. He's a celebrity. He is a, a knock-around guy. He's a good fella. He's everything that America worships in a bad guy. He's like the anti-hero. But he, you always find good qualities. Okay, let me give you an example. It's, it's kind of far-fetched. You and I have talked about this before. And so hear me out. So look, I'm not the greatest guy in the world, okay? And yet you and I have talked about a situation where I saw a kid that was going to get possibly raped, or he was going to get raped. And I stepped in, and I used violence to stop it. It's a different situations, but you kind of understand what I did. Most people are, oh, my God, you know, Nogueira used violence to stop something. That's wrong. Yeah, well, I would argue that those morons would probably pull out their phones and take a picture of the guy getting raped and put it on YouTube or whatever. So with this guy, you've got to kind of understand that he is the lesser of two evils at some point because... He turned state evidence, he put away bad guys, and look, he learned from his mistakes. Everybody's redeemable in some way in the United States, and he has shown that his experience, and look, you could argue the same thing about me, and that's why I'm not really trying to put this guy down or, or anything else, and if I saw him in a room, I'd probably walk up to him and shake his hand and say, how you doing, Sammy? It'd be that simple. He would look at me, and I would look at him, and there would be no doubt that he'd recognize what I am, and I'd recognize what he is. It's that simple. And there would be a mutual respect there. Now, I don't want my son growing up with this guy. I don't want my daughter dating his daughter, because I know what this guy could bring to the table. That's a very dangerous atmosphere. But I also understand that there is repeated qualities to this guy. What he learned in the mob taught a lot of people a lot of things. He helped law enforcement at one time try and put away bad guys and stop other murders. How many murders did he stop? I don't know. But you you have to look at what he did that was positive and then make a decision for yourself whether you believe that what he did it redeem him. I don't know if it redeems him because those the, the main murders he did. But there is a place where you can say, look, this guy did a few things that were at least helpful and he's educating the public on what happens in the mob and I'm sure there's people that have turned away from that life knowing look if this guy testified against these guys because they're bad guys and this guy recognized that they're going to turn on you and stab you in the back at some time maybe I shouldn't get into this game so there's different ways of looking at this of course the other side is hey he's a freaking murderer he killed 19 people minimum and he's not redeemable he's just a freaking guy who talks about this stuff and makes money off it because everybody's obsessed with this stuff that's the other side of this thing well you're right about the reverence i watched on youtube last night a congressional hearing where he was testifying about uh, about the boxing industry and whether or not it was fixed and Beside the point, but you could see the reverence that these congressmen, that these politicians, these powerful politicians had for him. They were fascinated by him. It it seemed evident that they kind of wanted to be his buddy. Now, on the other hand, okay, so this guy is revered because he was in the mafia. People think there's this cachet behind the mafia and that these guys mean business right on the other hand he's a coward he he snitched he's working with the government i don't see why we pick this guy to admire as opposed to someone who didn't roll over because you know this is the one he's he if we're if we're respecting these guys because they have this code oh they have this code you know and and they don't break the code well he broke the code so i I just Yeah. yeah yeah you're right did break the blood oath. That's the blood oath. He broke it. But I guess if, if I'm arguing for one side, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, he broke the oath. Hey, he, he, he became an informant. He snitched on his buddy. However, on the other side of that coin, you have to look at the bigger picture, which is his boss, John Gotti, did the same thing before that. He basically implicated stabbing all these murders, talked bad about him, and then he. So I know what you're thinking, but. But Sammy, his mind's thinking, I showed this guy loyalty. 
I broke rules by killing the, bo the boss of the whole Gambino family for this guy, and look what he's doing to me. He's implicating me in murders. He's talking bad about me. Hey, screw this guy. And that's what he's feeling. So I understand. Now, you have to look at the picture by society standards. So, yeah, he snitched. But there's a big portion of the society now that says, well, he did the right thing. He put people in prison. He helped law enforcement. Who doesn't like law enforcement? So, I'm I understand what you're saying, but it's a little hypocritical to call this guy a coward when the other people were doing the same thing to him, and when he was out there, even today he's out there, people fear this guy because they know what he's about. I would be reserved to say this guy's a coward. Did he turn? He did. It's okay. You have to call it what it is. But in society, in, a, in, the, in the bigger picture, benefit from it, and it's absolutely correct. Yes, they did. Because he gave up things that no... Look, I know a lot of... In the mob. In prison, there are a lot of mobsters here. Some are the state solid. They're considered bad guys. By the administration, by law enforcement, by society, because they continue to try and kill people. There are other guys that have turned. They have testified against these guys who stopped murders, and now society looks at those guys as heroes. So you just got to choose a side of what you want to do. I kind of look at it in the bigger picture. Look, I understand what he is. I'm not sure if I'm impressed by him. I've met a, shit, dozens of people like that. But, yeah, he's an interesting guy. He knows a lot. He's been around. He's seen a lot. Yeah, I'd have a conversation with him. So let's talk about the murders. Uh, I'm assuming a lot of these are by gunfire. He's not a serial killer. We know that. Although he literally is a serial killer and that he serially killed people. Um, but can you talk about, I don't know, the kind of difference between a guy who... Uh, and I don't know if he got satisfaction out of it by the way i have no idea maybe he liked doing it i don't know but can you talk about the difference between what we call a serial killer and what this guy was doing sure well the definition of a serial killer is a person who's killed more than three people in different acts however the person receives sexual gratification or control so and technically you could argue well that book controlled his witnesses he did all this stuff or with the people he was going to kill and he kind of enjoyed it you, you can't be that good at something and not enjoy it is a complete big difference. Sandy the Bull is what you call it. He is what you call a hitman. He is a killer who kills for gain, for reputation, for uh, status, and under orders. Whether it be his own orders or someone else's orders, that's why he killed. Serial killer is not like that. These guys, you can't compare a serial killer to a mob member that killed even 100 people because there's guys in the mob that have killed close to 100 people or even more. You know, so but you never compare them. Totally different. Um, do you like it? I'd say he got a rush out of it because no one gets that good at something unless they like it. And I can tell you that when he was told to go start saying for money and there's a situation where he beat a guy with a, uh, a flat jack and he broke his finger and his finger came off his hand and when he reported to the mob what he did they laughed at him I thought it was great they tapped him on the back and hey man you're a good guy you're a good fella and I bet you anything he loved it that type of of uh, reverence he loved it so was he good at it absolutely but he's not a serial killer. Simon the Bucavano is one of the one of the most revered, feared hitman that's ever existed, and he became one of the most well-known monsters because he informed on John Gotti and the rest of the families in New York, which makes him a marked guy. But interesting enough, no one's touched this guy. This guy's running around town on podcasts. Everybody knows where he's at, and they wanted him. I'm sure they can find someone out there to go take care of, but they haven't done it. See, they're looking at the bigger picture. Do you personally know in San Quentin where you're at right now, or in the past, 
have you met a guy who's in the same category as Sammy the Bull, a guy who's not a serial killer, but he's killed an untold number of people? Absolutely. I know several of them that have killed well over the numbers that Sammy admits to a killing, and they are not serial killers. They're hitmen, and they're killing for a gang, under orders, or for profits. Is there one in particular, you don't have to use the guy's real name, but someone that you, you know, can remember in a, in a isolated sense. And I mean, what's it like talking to someone that's killed that many people? Is it constantly on your mind or if, do they come off as a normal guy? And if so, do you kind of, um, forget about it or, or put it out of your mind? Like, I'm just thinking, all right, I'm hanging out with this guy that's killed 50 people we get in a little argument that friends get into about, uh, Hey, you took the last Coke out of the fridge or whatever. Now I got to worry about if he's going to kill me, you know? No, I totally get what you're saying, but yeah, I, I know, I, I can't even just tell you one. I know on the top of my head, I know six or seven that I see on a daily basis that they are that guy you're talking about. But I, I've never, hold on. I have never once in my life thought, oh, wow, i got to treat this guy different because he's killed 18 people or 25 people. I mean, look, I live with killers. I've been, I've been living with killers for 40 years of my life. I don't take it out of my mind. I treat every individual as a wolf. I understand who he is and what he is. But when you're dealing with people who are wolves themselves, there's a mutual thing that if it comes down to it, I know what he's going to try and do to me. And I'm prepared for that at all times. But it's something that I, it doesn't make me a tough guy. It doesn't make me a guy who's better than anybody else. I'm just more prepared because I've trained for it all my life. And for the last 40 years, I've been living with it. It's no different than when a police officer goes on the beat. He's trained to do that. He knows what he has to do. It's no different. It's like you dealing with people you know every day that I probably wouldn't understand because I've never lived with them. But these guys don't get into arguments over cooks or who took the last burrito. When it comes to something like that, it has to be something extremely personal in prison, or that you've put yourself in a position by gambling or debts or whatever you've done to get on their list and get hit. Let me call back. Hey, Matt. Yeah, so this is an interesting question. I don't know if we can answer it, but we should try. So we did an episode on Luis Garavito, the Colombian serial killer who killed children i think it was episode in the 20 or 20s or 30s and let's just say he killed 300 people and he's kind of considered the most prolific serial killer of all time okay is there a hitman if you had to bet i know you don't bet that much anymore but is there a hitman with a higher count than that out there somewhere over 300 well phrased another way if i can try and phrase it correctly the person who's killed the most people directly with his bare hands quote unquote is that a serial killer or is that a hitman it's a serial killer and that guy got it there's a russian one as well that's killed but there are generals that have killed whole entire towns by putting them in a house and firing on them so i don't know that it's the same thing but look when it comes to hitmen they have to be hired to do it. And I would be very... I don't think there's a hitman out there that has 300 kills that he did personally. I would be... Yeah, I would bet against it. The odds that that's true, it's, it's very rare. You know, you have... We talked about the Iceman. He killed a lot of people. There have been other mob hitmen that have killed lots of people. But usually, they never get those numbers because they retire the guys or they kill them themselves. And they get killed. They know too much. Um, so I'd be very... Now, there may be... Now, let me just say this, then. I'm willing to bet you that, there's, there's a, that there is a U.S. military sniper out there that we don't talk about that has more than 300 kills on his, on his sheet. And he's probably worked in the Middle East in probably different countries, and he's killed more than that people. I, I'm willing to bet that easily. 
Yeah, I think sniping, though, is a lot easier. You're not looking the person in the eye. You're not talking to them. You're not smelling them. But, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's right. So, Sammy the Bull Gravano is 77 years old. And he's doing all right with his YouTube channel. But he's still this guy. He's still this scumbag. So... Is he going to go back to prison? Is he doing anything illegal right now? What are your odds he catches another case before he meets his maker? Zero. He's not going to. Social media has made this guy into a phenomenon. He is not going to commit any more crimes. He's not going to commit anything else. I'm sure he probably thinks about it. I mean, he probably relives his moments. You know how to say zero killers, keep tokens. This guy probably remembers the stuff that he did. I don't think he thinks about himself. But he's enjoying a bit of fame with, with, as you mentioned, the YouTube channel and with podcasts. He's a sought-after guy. There's going to be a movie. I guarantee you that if there's not a movie out there right now in the making about his life, there's going to be real soon. These streaming networks like uh, Netflix and Hulu and all these other places, that's content that people want to see. If you put a movie out about Gravano, people are going to watch it in the millions because of his reputation. Now, let me just say this before we close, is that it's a lot more difficult for a person in prison to kill because it's so much more personal. On the streets, you can set a guy up, you can shoot him with a gun, you know, those type of things. In prison, when a hitman goes after somebody, there's only one way to go after you. That's with a knife in his hand. That's a lot more personal when you're trying to stab the person to death than a hitman. So there are hitmen in prison. They are part of a mob, and they are out there doing what they have to do under orders of a, of a boss. But that's a lot more difficult, at least in my opinion, when you have to go after a guy with a knife, and more than, more than likely the guy has a knife too, and, and you're going to be actually stabbing each other trying to kill this guy. That's a very difficult thing to do. Something I hope I never have to, have to deal with again. As you know, I've dealt with that before. Someone has come after me with a knife, and it's very difficult. I don't ever carry a knife. I don't ever um, attack anybody. But if someone comes after me, I definitely will defend myself with my bare hands. That's a very difficult thing to do when you're sitting there fighting somebody off, and they have a knife, and they are repeatedly stabbing you. The, the craziest thing that, and I can give you just picture this, is smelling that copper smell of your own blood as someone is puncturing your chest with a knife. It's, it's something really surrealistic to think about. But when it's actually happened to you, you don't feel pain, which is insane. You don't feel the puncture wounds. You don't feel anything. You're just in that mode of survival. You want to survive and get this guy off of you because his intent is to kill you. Well, in closing here, to pivot from that, when someone goes into the witness protection program, like Sammy the Bull, they always send them to Arizona. I'm not sure why. They must just have good facilities there. Now, if I was someone who got screwed over by a guy that went into witness protection, first thing I would do is just go to Phoenix or Tucson and look for the guy, and you'd probably find him. So I don't get why they keep doing that. But, <clears throat> Bill, you know, hypothetically if you got put into witness protection and you had a say in it, now you can't live in LA, you can't live in San Diego, you can't live in New York, you can't live in Seattle or San Francisco, but there's still a lot of places you can go. So where would you choose if they gave you your pick within reason? Hell, I don't know. Hang out at the, at the freaking hotel where the live version of, uh, of uh, I don't know, God, Montana. I want to go to Arizona, that's for sure, because everybody's there. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And, you know, witness protection is what people think it is. It really uproots you from your family. You, you don't get to talk to your friends. You don't get to talk to your family anymore. You're going into a witness protection program, and you're somebody totally different. That's a very difficult lifestyle, and I'm sure that's why Time of the Bull got out of it. But if it were me, I'd probably go for, you know, I don't know, somewhere like Montana or something. Maybe I'll ride a horse in the range or something, but... Yeah, not a nice thing to do. I mean, it's something that the decision you have to make for yourself, as Senator Bull did. And if, if I ever have to cross that bridge, I'm sure I'll make that decision for myself. But it's not an easy one, that's for sure. But more than likely, hey, I'll give you a better one. This is what my real answer is going to be. Forget the police.
Yeah, just put cameras up at your house. I mean, you should be totally fine. <laughs> well, maybe I can put up some, uh, some bulletproof glass, like you house, soundproof glass. Have a crazy neighbor coming over trying to beat my door down at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, luckily, we don't have to concern ourselves with that. Anyway, Bill, it's been interesting as always, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, I've been Matt Ralston. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings, your life, and the kettle. We'll see you next time.